Well, hello. My name's Steve. It's good to know you. Um, I'll start today by asking and answering a few questions maybe that you've had in your mind or that uh, maybe I have been asked. One, maybe you're saying, where the heck have you been? And uh, on every summer, our elders graciously allow me to take a one-month study break, for which I am extremely grateful. I'm, the way I'm wired, I can be better the other 11 months if I can have a month to step back and just uh, read and reflect and get refreshed in God. And uh, I am. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for those of you who prayed for me or sent me emails or Facebooks saying, you know, you're praying for me and that I would have ears to hear what God is saying. And um, yeah, God is good. So that's where I've been. You say, well, what, what did you study? If your study break... And uh, we did some other things as well. We vacationed a little bit in Washington, D.C., saw some of the sites there and visited family, took my son and a bunch of friends to Kings Island. I'll tell you about that in a minute, did some other fun things. But as far as my study goes, I studied God. <laughs> That's all I studied. Theology, God, the study of God, and uh, dove in deep and read some great books, which I'd like to recommend to you. Uh, this little book, look at that. That's an easy read. By C.J. Mahaney, it's called The Cross-Centered Life, Keeping the Gospel the Main Thing in Your Life. And uh, you can sit down in one or two readings and polish this thing off. Great little book. I've been recommending this next one for a while. If you haven't read it yet, I, I really believe that every Christian should read this book. It's called What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? By Greg Gilbert. And, of course, the gospel is our main message, right, that we have to the world and to each other. Again, a very short read. You'll enjoy that. Here's one I've been diving into recently. It's called uh, Desiring God by John Piper, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And uh, he builds a case for God being a very happy God and uh, Christians being those who find their fullest joy and happiness in their relationship with God and seeking after pleasure in him. Check it out. Deep stuff, but uh, I believe that you'll enjoy it. Maybe you're asking, you know, in years past, when you've come back from study break, you've kind of laid a new emphasis or a new direction on us. Are you going to do that again this year and uh, or this school year, I should say? And what I would say to that is, no, what God did on the study break in my life this year is he showed me continually and reinforced what he's been showing me for the last year, the necessity of and value of a... God-centered, gospel-driven, Jesus-focused life and ministry and church. And he's deepening in me a strong passion to live that way and to challenge our church to live that way. And uh, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Maybe you're asking, what's this Soma thing that I've been hearing about and you've been talking about and others have been talking about for the last month? Well, what Soma is, it's a new school of ministry that we're opening up here in about a month. And uh, it's a great opportunity for you as a follower of Jesus to take some classes and get involved in some mentoring relationships. Um, There's been a lot of interest in SOMA. A number of you have picked up this little handbook and you've uh, looked in here and seen that you can take classes like uh, Old Testament survey, introduction to church history, Jesus-focused ministry, the Gospel of John, the book of Ephesians, Jesus Messiah, 
ministry, applying the gospel to life, praying for others, exercising your spiritual gifts, spiritual shepherding, discipling into maturity. All of those are classes being offered through SOMA. And uh, because of your feedback, we're considering offering the courses on a weeknight evening uh, instead of Saturday mornings, just for the sake of accessibility to more of you. So uh, hopefully if we go that direction that um, you'll be able to participate. So pray about that. We're excited about it, and I spent a lot of my study break studying for the first several classes in SOMA. Well, oh, maybe you're asking, are we going to resume the First Corinthians study? You know, if you've been around New Life since February, we've been studying the book of First Corinthians together and been praying about whether God would have us resume that uh, in the fall, and the answer is yes. We're going to continue to study through First Corinthians. We'll pick up in chapter 8, right where we left off there, and so if you want to uh, begin reading ahead in First Corinthians, then you'll be prepared for what God has for us as we resume that. Well, um, Today, you know, normally in my sermons, I have it all written out word for word and scripted out and goes through about five edits before it ever gets to you, but I'm not doing that today. I'm going to just um, kind of talk from my heart, and I need to hear myself uh, say the things I'm going to say today. I need to hear what's in my own heart in an unfiltered, unguarded kind of a way and just hopefully... um, glorify Jesus in the process. You know, the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's in the heart comes out of your mouth. And what I'm coming to realize is that I'm actually starting to believe this stuff that I've been talking about for the last year, that it's in my heart and it's coming out in uh, conversations with people and emails and all kinds of stuff. And so I just want to talk with you for a little bit this morning about um, our church's DNA. That's the name of this series, DNA. By the way, do you know what DNA stands for? Deoxyribonucleic acid, yeah. So you can impress your friends with that. But basically, DNA is that which, you know, it's contained in each of our cells as individuals. It makes us who we are. It defines who we are. And churches have a DNA as well that defines who they are and what they look like. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the DNA of New Life Church, what makes us uniquely us. But in saying that, I don't want to imply that, you know, we feel like we're better than all the other churches or different, you know, in in that sort of a way. There's a lot of DNA that we share with Christ churches all over the the globe, and we want to acknowledge that. But we say things a certain way around here, and uh, we're going to explore that together these next several weeks. A couple weeks ago, I took my son, it was for his birthday, and a pack of his friends to Kings Island. And uh, in driving into the lot down there, I realized, man, it's been probably 15 or 20 years since I've been to Kings Island. (laughs) How many of you have been to Kings Island in the last few years? Okay, pretty cool place, fun place, great place to take a bunch of middle schoolers and let them have a great time. And we did. We had a good time that day, and they had a lot of fun. And I was uh, enthralled with one ride there in particular. I think it's called the Drop Zone or it used to be called that, I think they've tweaked the name a little bit, but uh, what this thing is, is this huge post that extends 315 feet into the air. So think of a football field vertical. And this post is encircled by this ring of seats that have harnesses and everything, and they pack about 30 or 40 brave individuals into these seats, pull the harnesses over them, 
And then this ring of seats is hoisted up this post all the way, all the way up 315 feet where the view, you know, is just amazing. And you can see, you know, the, the whole theme park and the people look like little ants down there. And you can see all the way to Cincinnati and, and the vista is just amazing. And then they hold you there for a few moments and then they release something and this thing goes, boom, <laughs> drop zone. That's what they call it. And uh, there's screaming and yelling, and then, you know, and I'm down there watching people, and I see breakfast flying out and all kinds of stuff, and, you know, then it kind of slows and comes to a slow stop at the bottom, and people get out and undo their harness and walk back out into the park, and they're just thrilled and amazed by the breathtaking experience that they just had. At least that's what I'm told. I myself did not go on such a ride. Because I had a great breakfast that morning, that morning and I wanted to keep it to myself. But uh, talk with some folks getting off of that and they said it's just this exhilarating experience. 67 miles an hour free falling down and uh, breathtaking, breathtaking. Well, my prayer has been that today God, through his spirit, would do something similar in us. That he would hoist us up high high, 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 high above the landscape where all people begin to look just like little ants down there and we see the broad, vast vista and horizon and we see things the way they really are and get the big panorama of what God's up to in the world. And then slowly, (laughs) not at 67 miles an hour, but slowly would he drop us back down to the earth so that we undo the harness and walk out into our world and navigate through our lives, but with that panorama etched into our hearts and minds, ever mindful of why we're here and what we're supposed to be about. And I want to answer two questions this morning. And the first one is, why are we here? And the second one is, why are we here? The first why are we here is, why are we even here? (laughs) Why are we on the planet? What are we here for? What is the grand storyline of the Bible and the grand purpose of our existence. Why are we here? We need to know that and we need to be reminded of that. And when you get hoisted up to 300 feet, that's what you see is why we're here. And then I want to narrow the focus to why are we here? We here at New Life Church. Why are we still here? What is our mission? What has God called us to? Why are we here? So let's start first by asking the question about our existence. Why are any of us here today? Why are we on the planet? Why do we exist? And I submit to you that when God hoists you up and lifts you up high to that place where you see things clearly and you see the broad horizon and the large vista that you will contend that the reason we're here is for God and for the glory of God. Because when you get up that high, that's who you see, God. The heavens declare the glory of God, it says. That's why we're here. Romans 11.36. I love this verse. After 11 full chapters of Paul writing about God and man and sin and condemnation and death and then Jesus and the gospel and the cross and the blood and justification by faith, and sanctification, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then God's grand design for the nation of Israel. He finishes all of that sweep with this verse in Romans 11.36. He breaks into a doxology, basically. 
of praise. And he writes this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him, and the him is God, are all things, everything. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What is God's grand purpose for you and for me for being on the planet? To glorify God. To glorify Him. Colossians 1.16, all things were created by Him and for Him. You say, Steve, why am I on the planet? Why am, why am I even here? Like a guy asked me about a month ago. He said, I, I, I've got to know the point of why I'm here or I'm going to stop trying. You exist, I exist to bring God glory. Isaiah 43, 8, God says it very clearly. I'm calling my people to myself, my sons and daughters, my people whom I created for my glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you know this verse. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God, the most mundane, routine exercises and activities of daily life, eating and drinking, are to be for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or play basketball or go to work or have friends over or watch television or engage in sports. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, it says. We exist for the glory of God. In that sense, he doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. He created us, Revelation says, for his own pleasure and glory. And we'll be praising him for that forever. We exist for the glory of God. Of course, we need to know what the glory of God is. What is the glory of God? Well, I'm not going to answer that question for you. You've got to figure that out. Maybe you need to read Exodus chapter 33 where Moses pleaded with God, show me your glory and find out through the reading what God did to show Moses his glory. Maybe you need to read Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah had this incredible vision of the God of the universe and he saw angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe you need to check that out and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God and how are they related. Maybe you need to read 1 Corinthians 3.18 where it says, we're transformed in the image of Christ as we behold his glory. Maybe you need to read again like I did yesterday, Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in John 17 where he said, Father, I want my people to be with me in heaven so that they will see my glory. We've got to figure out what the glory of God is. If we're supposed to live for the glory of God, we've got to figure out what it is. We exist to glorify our Creator. Let me say it a different way. We exist to magnify God. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Love this verse. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, he wrote, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And he was on trial, and he was awaiting his sentence. 
basically for preaching the gospel and declaring that Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe, the king, not Caesar. And he was on trial for that. He didn't know if he was going to be executed or if he was going to be released. So he said, I'm, I'm here, but whether I live or die, I want Jesus to be magnified. 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 The Greek word is mega lunestatai. Mega. You hear it? I want Jesus to look big. I want Jesus to look great, whether I live or die. What he was saying is whether I live or die doesn't matter that much. What matters is that Jesus looks great, looks big, mega big through whatever happens, whatever circumstances I go through. You see, God is great, but he doesn't always look great to people. So God uses his people to magnify him so that he looks great. Paul said, I want people to look at my life and say, man, God must be great. And this is growing in me. I want people to look at Steve's life and not say Steve is great, but to say God must be great. And that's his intent for you and you and you and you and all of us. That God would be great and look great through our lives. Now, there's two ways to magnify. You can magnify like through a microscope or you can magnify like through a telescope. A microscope makes... Little itsy-bitsy teeny things look a little bigger. But a telescope makes huge, gargantuan things look more like they really are. And we are to magnify God not like through a microscope, but like through a telescope. Your life and my life needs to focus attention on the greatness of God. Magnify Him. Mega big God. Do people say that when they get to know you, did they say, man, God must be awesome. When I look at your life, it just, it just, you're a walking billboard for God. You see, you were meant to be enthralled by greatness. You were meant to praise and enjoy praising greatness. You were. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon Why do people want to see the northern lights? Why do people go to Niagara Falls? You don't go to those kind of places to feel better about yourself, to increase your self-esteem. No, you go to those places because we want to be amazed and enthralled by greatness. We want to see things and go, oh, my. (laughs) My wife uh, recently surpassed a significant milestone of birthdays, the number of which shall remain concealed and hidden. For my own sake, because I want to remain happy. <laughs> I was going to uh, do this big party for her, and I started to plan it, and then I, I did something very wise. I asked her what she would like for this milestone birthday, and she said, you know, I'd rather you not do anything this year, but next year I want to go to the Grand Canyon. Because she said, I went to the Grand Canyon as a little girl, and it just overwhelmed me, and I want to go, and I want to be amazed again by just the vast expansiveness of that site. And so I'm starting to plan now for that trip next summer for her milestone birthday plus one, I guess it'll be. You know, in my own life, I would love before I die to see the the northern lights, you know, to just see it, to just be in a place where it's happening and the heavens are convulsing and this big 
green lava lamp in the sky is just going crazy. And I just want to, why? There's something in me that was meant to praise greatness and enjoy that. We were created this way. This is why our culture is celebrity crazy. And we want to make celebrities out of people so we can praise greatness. That's why we have shows on television like American Idol (laughs) and Dancing with the Stars and America's Got Talent. Why? Because we want to make people into celebrities because we were meant to praise greatness. Problem is we settle for lesser pleasures. We settle for lesser happinesses. We settle for lesser heroes. We were in our essence and core meant to praise the greatness of our creator God. Created to praise him, to magnify him. And here's the thing I'm starting to get this this last year in this study break is this. Aiming our lives to glorify God is the only way that we are going to be supremely happy. (laughs) This might be a new thought for you. You do not have to choose. It seems like it, but you do not have to choose between being happy and glorifying God. They are one in the same pursuit. Somebody gets this. They're one in the same pursuit. Now, I didn't get that growing up in church. That's not what I was taught. I was kind of taught this. You can either be happy or glorify God. If you want to be happy, you go out and do the fun things everybody else is doing and get your thrills and your excitements and your, you know, that kind of a thing. Or... You can try to grind out a life of, you know, self-sacrifice and glorify God. It's going to be kind of miserable. There's going to be a lot of things you can't do, but, you know, God will be happy. I was kind of presented with that choice. Were you? It's like, this is going to be miserable, and this is kind of fun over here, but don't do that stuff. Do this. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not true. This is, this is deceitful. The greatest joy and happiness you'll ever have in your life is when you are in union with your Creator and enjoying Him fully forever. That's what heaven's going to be. That's what heaven's going to be. Heaven will only be heaven because Jesus is going to be there. (laughs) Your pursuit of happiness... And listen, you want to be happy, don't you? So do I. It's in me. I want to be happy. My heart is a desire factory producing the desire for pleasure every day. I want to have pleasure. And the answer is not to say, well, I have to deny myself all pleasure. C.S. Lewis says our desire for pleasure is not too strong. It's too weak. Because if we'll really pursue pleasure and joy, we'll go to the source, the fountainhead of all pleasure and joy. And we were created for that. This is new, new thinking for a lot of us. It is for me. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, Paul wrote in Romans 5.2. Think of that. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. They're both there. Do you see them? Our joy, his glory, they're connected. They're related. You say, I want to be happy, Steve. I just want to be happy. Then pursue God. (laughs) Pursue him with all you got. In his presence is fullness of joy, it says in Psalm 1611. It's all over the Bible once you have eyes to see it. The pursuit of the glory of God and the pursuit of intense, eternal, full joy is the same pursuit. Second Thessalonians 1 said, Jesus is coming when he comes to be marveled at. 
by his saints and thoroughly enjoyed. Now, I want to rattle you a little bit because Paul's desire to magnify God with his life was not his idea. It wasn't his idea. It came from somewhere. This this idea that Paul or that any of us should live our lives to magnify God and live for his glory, that idea came from somewhere. You know where it came from? It didn't come from Satan. <laughs> he has no interest in that. It didn't come from our flesh. It came from God. And what that means is, is that God is self-exalting. And so many of us choke on that truth. <laughs> but you read the Bible and you can't deny it, can you? Praise me. Worship me. Hate your father and mother. Put me above all other relationships in your life. I will be exalted above the nations. I created you for my glory. God has a passion for his own glory. And this is meat. And so many people have a hard time digesting the truth that God is God-centered, not man-centered, because we ask the question, what? How can that be loving? How can God being God-centered, being all about his glory, saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, how can that be God-centered? I mean, excuse me, how can that be loving towards us? Because God is a God of love. And that is a great question. And the reason we ask that question is because when we meet people who are self-exalting, we go, yuck, get over yourself. <laughs> You're full of yourself. If, if someone was going around saying, praise me, worship me, I'm the greatest, there is none like me, hate everybody else and love me supremely, you know, I want to be your supreme treasure in life, we would go, get out of here and come back when you have a little humility. And we see verses in the Bible that says, love seeks not its own. I read that in a wedding just a couple days ago. Love seeks not its own, 1 Corinthians 13. And we think about that and we think, well, then how can God be loving, both loving and self-exalting? And there's there's an opening of the heart and mind that the Spirit of God has to do in us here so that we understand that the rules that apply to the creature don't apply to the Creator. Because when you are the supreme, supremely valuable thing in the whole universe, you must exalt yourself to exalt anything else above you would be wrong, unrighteous, and idolatrous. But here's the thing. How can God's... Oh, I wrote just this morning. I'm opening my Bible this morning to read a few verses because I'm going to church and I need to be in the right mindset. And my Bible flips open to this, Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. (laughs) I'm like, no way. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Here's the thing. For God to exalt himself, is the most loving thing he could possibly do for us. You might have to create a new category in your mind to understand that God's 
radical self-exaltation is necessary for your joy. Because that your joy is your highest good, and God in his heart of love wants to give you the highest good you could possibly have, and the highest good in the whole universe is not cute little Susie, it's not a Ferrari, it's not the, you know, the position at work, it's him! It's him! God says, I'm going to make a way to give myself to you because I'm the supremely valuable being in the whole universe in whom resides your highest joy. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel makes a way for sinners to be enthralled by the glory of God and enjoy it forever, forever. Do we get this? I'm not sure if I get it. That's why I'm talking. Because the more I talk, the more I hear myself say it, the more I realize I'm coming to believe this. God's self-exaltation is loving towards you and me. He has to. For him to do otherwise would be unloving, wicked, unrighteous. I mean, what if God went around saying, oh, praise you, praise you, praise you. Oh, yeah, praise you, praise you, praise you. That would be deceptive, wouldn't it? You're not worthy of highest praise, neither am I. He is. There is no one greater in all the universe. So when you read your Bible and you see these verses where God is commanding praise, and how about this one, commanding us to delight in him. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. That's a command to be happy in God. (laughs) You thought God wanted you to be miserable. Didn't you? God wants you to be happy. God is happy. He's extremely happy in himself. The Father and the Son and the Spirit throughout all of eternity being glad in each other. Read that prayer again in John 17. of Jesus, The prayer coming from Jesus' lips. You'll see it again. I love the Father. The Father loves me. I love the Spirit. The Spirit loves... We've been invited into an intra-Trinitarian love affair and we get to participate in it and feel the love of God towards us as we exalt Him supremely in our lives. These are big thoughts, aren't they? But remember, we're hoisted way up high. We're 300 feet above the, the, the landscape. We're getting the big picture. But now let's let that ring drop a little bit slowly. So we don't lose anything that we don't want to lose. And come down and ask the second question, not only why are we here, but why are we here? Why is new life still here? In some ways of thinking, we shouldn't even be here. I think back five years ago to 2005, a year of huge upheaval for this church, where we had a senior pastor transition and then some staff transitions and planted a church all within three months. That's like having a heart transplant, major surgery, and having a baby. Within a year, the the bottom started to fall out of the economy, and our nation entered a season of economic downturn and decline and recession that some say has been unprecedented in our nation's history, the worst economic time in our history. And all of those transitions together, you know, we probably, humanly speaking, shouldn't have survived that. Many churches would not have. So much change, so much transition. Why are we still here? 
And my short answer is God must not be done with us. He must still have a plan. I want you to take your bulletin. Well, worship folder, formerly known as bulletin. And I want to take the next few moments and basically preach the front cover of the bulletin. (laughs) Because this is why we believe we are here. This is in our DNA. It always has been for 25 years. If someone said, why, what is new life all about? What are we trying to do? What is our mission? We might not have always used this same exact verbiage, but this has always been what we've been about. Why are we here? We are here to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. That's why we're here. That is our particular way of verbalizing the Great Commission. (laughs) And you go to churches all over the country, and they'll have their little mission statements, and really they're all traced back to and rooted in the Great Commission, the final words of Jesus to his disciples before he left and went back into heaven, which was go in... Well, first he said, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore... Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'm going to be with you to the end of the age as you do that. This is just our way of saying the Great Commission. Why are we here? Why is New Life still here? To lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel. And that's not just why I'm here. That's why all of us are here. If you're here... As Pastor Jay mentioned a few weeks ago, if you're here firmly planted both feet in the game in this church, this is what we're about. Short version, make disciples. Each word is important here, to lead. Our mission is to lead people. That implies influence. Making disciples involves influencing people, doesn't it? (laughs) To lead people. To lead, to influence them in in the direction, the direction I've been talking about for the last 25 minutes, towards Godwardness, towards God-centeredness. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is someone who has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ so that now his or her supreme treasure in all of life is Jesus. That's what the gospel enables you to do, embrace Jesus. Sinful, unregenerate people don't want to embrace Jesus. He scares them a little bit. But when we embrace the gospel, that we begin to see him for who he really is. Our mission is to lead people. People. All kinds of people. Little people, like are in your household. 70, 80, 90-year-old people. Black people, white people, Jews, Gentiles, male, female. All kinds of people. God's desire, it says in Revelation 4 and 5, is that in heaven there be people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation in heaven worshiping the Lamb. Our mission is to lead people, all kinds of people. There's people in your life that God intends for you to lead into a transforming relationship with Jesus. People at school, people at work that you work with, people at church, somebody in your small group, a spiritual partner, the children who live in your home, There is at least one person, I'm confident, in your life that God's aim and goal and intent for you is that you would lead them into a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. He would use you as an influence. It's his work through you to lead people into. That's an important word because that's a process word, isn't it? 
into implies process. It implies time. It implies sometimes two steps forward, three steps backward, four steps forward, two steps backward. Lead people into step by step a growing, transforming relationship with Jesus. It's a process. That means you have to be patient with yourself, with others, with those little ones in your home that you have high expectations for, with that coworker that you've been praying for for 15 years and you don't see any opening yet. We've got to be patient to lead people into a transforming relationship. Let's talk about relationship for a minute. Can you believe that the, the glorious creator God of all the universe wants to enter into relationship with us? That's Christianity, is it not? It's not a set of rituals or rules that you keep. It's a relationship. Jesus said eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. No, to know and be known. God wants to be known by you and me. He knows us fully. He wants to be known. That's what the gospel is all about. Opening up that possibility that we could even know our creator. It's a relationship. If you were taught growing up that Christianity is a bunch of rules, a list of rules to keep or rituals that you just mindlessly go through the motions and perform every week, your weekly obligation, that's wrong. It's just wrong. Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Communion with him. And notice it's a transforming relationship. (laughs) Because when Jesus comes, he comes to change, doesn't he? Oh, I hope, I'm almost 50 now. That used to seem old. Now it seems very young. 70-year-olds seem sprightly and young to me now. (laughs) Because that's just around the corner. I hope I never get old and crotchety and calcified and just like, I am who I am. I don't change anymore. I like what I like. I don't like what I don't. I hope I don't get that way. I hope I stay moldable and malleable and pliable in the hands of God like soft clay. Don't you? Because when you decide that you're going to stop changing, you're done changing, guess what? You're going to stop growing. There is no spiritual growth without change. And I started talking about transformation about four years ago, four years ago around here. And I thought it was for you, and it's been more for me. God's working in me. He's changing me. And I'm not engineering it. He's doing it. And so I say, God, don't stop, you know, don't stop. The work which he began in you, Philippians 1, 6 says, he will continue to perform until the day of Jesus Christ. And then when we see him, and not till we see him, then his work will be complete and he'll say it's a masterpiece. To lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. 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 If you come to New Life Church, you're going to hear a lot about Jesus. If you don't like Jesus, you're not going to be happy here. (laughs) It's Jesus. I feel like I have one song now. Only Jesus, all the time Jesus, all the verses and stanzas are all about Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus. And not the Jesus that we've concocted an image of in our own minds. The real Jesus from the pages of Scripture. The Jesus who was born of a virgin. In Bethlehem, who confounded the religious leaders in the temple when he was 12. Who was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Spirit 
came like a dove, rested upon him, and the booming voice of the Father coming out of heaven saying, this is my son, I'm well pleased in him. He hasn't even hardly done anything yet, but I'm pleased with him. That Jesus, the Jesus who preached the gospel fearlessly and courageously, who said, I am, took the name of Jehovah for himself. The Jesus who cleansed the temple one day with a whip and said, zeal for the house of God has eaten me up. I'm passionate about the glory of God. Don't turn it into a den of thieves. The Jesus who spoke tenderly and compassionately to a woman with a sordid past and brought her to himself in faith. The Jesus who turned away the rich young ruler who was full of himself and full of his money and had idols in his life he wasn't willing to topple and walked away and Jesus didn't chase after him. The Jesus who calmed the wind and the waves with his voice, with his words. The Jesus who created food and fed the multitude of 5,000 and then said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And they walked away, many of them. That Jesus, the real Jesus, who trained 12 disciples, had them follow him around for three years, learn his ways, learn his heart, pray with him, see him in tribulation and hardship and suffering and see him rejoicing and filled with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus. The Jesus who increasingly incurred the ire and despising of the religious community who finally arrested him and beat him and mocked him and flogged him. Beat him so that it says his appearance was scarcely human. You couldn't hardly recognize him as a human being. He was so beat up. And then nail him to a cross. But he said, you know what? No one takes my life from me. I lay down my life of my own accord. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why I'm submitting to this. He could have called 72,000 angels to come and rescue him in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. And they would have whisked him away to safety. But he said, no, I only do that which my father tells me to do. And he became our propitiation and our justification and our sanctification and our expiation and all those other big, long words that we need to learn what they mean and appreciate the fullness of what happened and what was achieved for us there on the cross. That Jesus who suffered and bled and died and was put in a borrowed tomb and then raised to life three days later victoriously, leading Satan and his demons in a humiliating train of procession Declaring victory, giving glory to God, and then ascending back up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and make intercession for his people to this day. That Jesus. To lead people into a transforming relationship with that Jesus, the real Jesus. Not some mental image that we've crafted in our minds to be what we want him to be, but who he is. And to do it, it says, through the gospel. And the sequence of that phrase makes it sound like that's a tack-on at the end. To lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. But really, that should be up front. Through the gospel, to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. It's the gospel that does it. That message that is to be declared and proclaimed, not just by me, but by all of us. The good news that the wrath of God can be removed from us and our rebellion can be removed as a barrier between us and God that we might enjoy our Creator forever and be enthralled by His greatness forever. The gospel does that. 
There's things I used to believe about the gospel that I don't believe anymore. I used to believe that the gospel was primarily for unbelievers. You know, the gospel is that message that when you believe it, gets you in, and then you move on from the gospel to the real work of discipleship and spiritual disciplines and becoming mature. But I don't believe that anymore. I think the gospel is central to the whole process. I think we ought to preach the gospel to unbelievers and that we ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other every day as Christians. I love what C.J. Mahaney says. The gospel is not one class among many that you'll take in your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes are contained in. Everything that you study and learn as a Christian rightly understood takes place within the walls of the glorious gospel, he said. And he's right. I used to think that it was okay to kind of assume the gospel and not talk about it that much because everybody knows it and they learned it in the Sunday school at age three and we don't have to talk about the gospel that much. I don't believe that anymore because I believe that what is believed in one generation gets assumed in the next, forgotten in the next, and denied in the next. (laughs) We can't assume the gospel. We've got to tell the gospel and say it and restate it. I feel like these days I'm a diamond curator. I hold up the diamond of the gospel and say, hey, let's marvel at another facet of this amazing, magnificent work of God. I love what um, one man said. He said, you know what? Paul's preferred method of discipling Christians, if you read his letters, was to re-preach the gospel to them and then demonstrate how that gospel should shape their thinking and their conduct. That's how he discipled people, with the gospel. I used to believe that the gospel was the ABCs of Christianity. Now I believe it's the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, all the way to Z. I don't believe that the gospel is elementary school or nursery school, and then you move on to the deeper truths. I believe the gospel is the deeper truth, and the more you look at that diamond, the more you see how magnificent and multifaceted it is. We'll be marveling at the gospel throughout eternity. You read Revelation 4 and 5, worshiping the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. God marvels at his own work in the gospel, and he calls us to join him in marveling at it. Let's bring that ring of seats all the way down to the earth now. And you're unhooking the harness, and you've seen the view from 300 feet, and you've seen the large, expansive picture of what God's doing in the world and what he calls us to magnify his glory. And you know why we're here as a church. But now you're going to shake yourself off and uh, walk out into your world where you're going to navigate your day-to-day routine lives. And I got to thinking, what would be the application of this message? And there are many. But the one that I feel impressed to challenge you with is this. And it's the answer to the question, how does this come about in someone's life? How does this gospel-centeredness, how does this, this passion to glorify God, how does that come into a person's life? And I think God uses several avenues, but here's one I want to impress upon you right now. I believe it's both taught and caught. 
And I believe that if you and I are going to have this kind of perspective and live out our grand purpose for existence, we need to get ourselves around people who are hungry-hearted. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what I've been doing. I've been getting around people who are hungry-hearted. Friends. Authors. Pastors. I've been trying to place myself around people who are hot who are on fire in hopes that some of that heat would get transferred to me through osmosis. That hot poker theory where you put it in the fire and it begins to glow orange. Some of you just need to look at your friends. You need to look at the people you're, you're with, you hang out with, and ask, is anybody hot for God here? Because I want to get hot for God, and, and your friends will determine to a great degree what kind of person you're going to be. And so are you, are you hanging out with some hungry-hearted people? I see God doing this in our church, stirring up a thirst and a hunger for him. Don't you feel that? Don't you see that? And so there are people in your small group, in this church, some of you have friends at work who are hot for God, and, and could I just challenge you to sidle up next to them and tighten your connection with them and have conversations with them about this growing desire in you and about the gospel and God. And, and maybe the, the tenor of your conversations will change and the subject will change and it'll move more Godward. You've got to get around hungry-hearted people. At least one person in your life who you're going, I want some of that. <laughs> I want some of what they got going on with him. Because it's not just taught, it's caught caught and so lord to that end i pray right now for new life church this um, precious wonderful body of believers lord i pray that in maybe a small way or maybe a huge way you've lifted us up this morning to see the landscape from your perspective where people all look Kind of small down there, whether they're six foot ten or five foot two, they all kind of look the same down there on the ground, but you look great and magnificent. Lord, as many of us who are already believers in you, may we embrace the gospel and re preach it to ourselves every day. May we be reminded of the Lamb that was slain. It opens us up, opens up the possibility that we might enjoy you, (laughs) love praising you, find the greatest pleasure in our life in worshiping you and living for your glory. And God, may we seek out and find hungry hearted people in our midst. Some of us have been avoiding those people because we feel convicted when we're around them. God, I pray that you would lift that and that there would be this inkling of desire, spiritual, intense fervor and desire to know you at a deeper level than we do. God, may new spiritual partnerships be formed, new discipling relationships, a new level in our small groups that goes beyond the surface and goes deeper. May it be so for your glory and for our joy. I pray this in your precious name. May we worship you now with abandon, with great love and gratefulness for who you are and what you've done. In your precious name.